we are continuing to look at the question, why are we here? And today we are going to be wrapping up our look at the concept of fellowship. And I've shared with you, we started off looking at worship and its importance and and how fellowship is important. And I hope by now you really do get that fellowship is not about cookies and Kool-Aid. It's about a lot, a lot more than that and much more meaningful. And so we're going to pray that God will move in a powerful way. Uh, Jim Kane uh, made reference to an article by in Christianity Today uh, several years ago, back in 2007. And it was talking about an event that had happened in a church on December 9, 2007, the New Life Church in Colorado Springs. And unfortunately... It's one of those stories that seems to happen more and more in our world today. There was a shooting at the church in the parking lot. It left three people dead and three wounded. The young man who had done the shooting killed himself after being wounded by a security guard. Earlier that day, he had been at the Youth with a Mission headquarters in suburban Denver, shooting four and killing two. His name was Matthew Murray. And he had been raised in a Christian home. The tragedy shook the church, obviously. But the church had just gone through a very painful and very public story of their former pastors fall into disgrace. And now they're facing another horrible tragedy. Brady Boyd, the current senior minister at the time, had called Murray's parents, and asked a question that may sound a little bit crazy to you, but he asked, would they like to come to New Life and see where their sons had passed away? They said they wanted to, but they refrained from doing so because they were concerned about the church and how it might affect them. They were asked if they would also be willing to meet with members of the family who lost two teenage daughters that morning. And they said yes. After showing up, the the Murrays went around the church where the events took place. They came to the pastor's office where they met the Works family. And then, boy, let me share with you his words about what happened. What happened there in the two hours of my office was the most significant ministry moment I've experienced maybe in all of my life. He said when they entered the office, the two families embraced each other. They sat, they wept, they cried together. And Boyd said, I don't know how long. And then they prayed. A little later, Gina Sam, the security guard who shot Murray, was invited to join them. And again, a moment of sheer grace when Jean who had undoubtedly saved many lives, but had been forced to shoot their son, the Murrays approached her, hugged her, and released her from any guilt and remorse. The dad looked at Jean and said, Please know, we're so sorry that you had to do what you did. We're so sorry. The article concludes with these words from Boyd. We can talk philosophically about repentance and redemption and going forward with God. But what I saw in that room in my office 
was the greatest testimony of forgiveness and redemption that I have ever seen. It was a testimony that God really can restore and redeem. The reality is everybody in this room at some point in time has failed. It may have been a failure in relationship, a failure in career, may have been a failure in character. But we have all had to deal with the disappointment, the pain, and sometimes even the guilt of failure. And hopefully in your life, when that moment of failure came, you had people like the Murrays and the Works who were willing to forgive and to love you through a difficult time. Now let's face it. I always try to be as real with you as I can. That's not always the way it works, is it? In fact, when we fail, we most likely have way too many people who are willing to kick us when we're down, who will browbeat us with shame. That we know too well. What we need is someone who will love us, take us by the hand, and offer forgiveness to us. Someone who will help us back on our feet. And that is a crucial part of fellowship. We need to really understand this. This is what fellowship in the body of Christ, the community of faith, is all about. Restoration is often needed because we're human and we mess up. So I want us to take a look at what Paul had to say about the issue of restoration. And he said it in the book of Colossians. We'll be looking at verses 3, uh, chapter 3, verses 12 through 14. And I want you to truly listen to the Word of God with both ears and your heart. And if you will, stand as we read, as we read and take a look. And hear what Paul had to say to this church that struggled. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together perfect unity. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. And speak to our hearts today, Lord Jesus. Amen. Our text, as simply put as I can, Paul called the church at Colossae to be people who restored broken relationships. That's what this text is about. When you fail, restore each other. Now, we need to understand, and in fact, at some level, we know this. We've heard verses like we read earlier in the service forever in our lives as Christians. We should be working to restore broken relationships in the body of Christ. Whenever they happen, we are called 
to build bridges of reconciliation. And in our text this morning, we're going to look at some very specific realities that are necessary for this to happen. Some realities, if we don't recognize, I believe each of these, the idea of restoration, of forgiveness, of reconciliation becomes less and less possible. And so we're going to take a look at the very first, as we look at restoring one another, this is your call, this is my call, Let's take a look at the first reality. We must no longer live like the world. We have a choice to make in our lives. And it comes down to this. Who are we going to act like? And we are embraced immediately through Paul's word to this truth. We must no longer live like the world. You see, the Apostle Paul as he's speaking and writing to the Colossians, pointed to the virtues that define children of God. I need you to hear that. These virtues will define us as children of God. Now, I want you to very quickly notice how Paul identified them, what he said about them. He opens up this by saying that they were God's chosen people. You're God's chosen. Now, understand That was language that was limited to Israel during the Old Testament era. It now has come to embrace all believers. Gentiles are now part of God's chosen people. We are part of the Israel of God. And to show that, Paul says, you are God's chosen people. And NIV has him saying, you are holy. Well, folks, what that word means here, you are his own. Holiness here, I think, right at this moment, is not focused on purity of character. It's pointing out, you're different. You've been set apart by God as his people. You belong to him. You are no longer in this world. And then to draw that to to its close and really let them know, you are God's chosen, his very own, his beloved. What Paul wanted the Colossians to know and understand, they truly were children of God. They really were part of the family. And so the rest of what Paul has to say, essentially, live like it. Since you're children of God, behave that way. And he uses an image. Uh, The New English Bible says, Put on the garments of virtue. But Paul says, clothe yourself. And it is an image of putting on clothes. Clothe yourselves with godly virtues. And I like what David Bartlett said. Uh, I have been in the ministry long enough. I've, I've been a pastor for 43 years. I had surrendered to preach uh, on my during my 15th year of life. And I have been in church, and I have heard the debate about what you should wear to church almost all my life. I still remember the first time I came to church in a bow tie, and people looked at me like I was crazy. But David Bartlett paints a beautiful picture and points out that what Paul is saying is here is he's giving us a description of how to dress in church. How should we dress in the body of Christ? Now listen to what he says. 
The apostle is not concerned, as we so often are, with whether blue jeans have any place in the sanctuary. The apostle is concerned with the way we dress our souls, our inner being. What is the character we put on in our lives? The virtues that are here commended are entirely social. And he points out, right dress is not a matter of individual priority. This isn't about, look how holy I am. This is about how do we relate to each other? These virtues are all about how we get along in the body of Christ. And let's look at them. Compassion. And literally, you've heard me say this before. If you, if you have read the King James all your life, you have probably come across the phrase, bowels of mercy. With Paul's people, the place where all the intense emotions were, they believed were in the bowels, the intestines. And, and we can understand that when you're really angry, you get upset stomach. When you're, when you're afraid, you get, you, we get that. But the idea behind this, compassion, is it is a deep sensitivity to the needs and sorrows of other people. It's caring about others. William Barclay, who, who was a beautiful painter of words, said if there was one thing that the ancient world needed, it was compassion. The sufferings of animals were nothing to it. The maimed and the sickly went to the wall. There was no provision for the aged, the treatment of, The simple-minded was unfeeling. Christianity, and this is important, Christianity brought compassion into this world. And he said it is not too much to say that everything that has been done for the aged, the sick, the weak in body and mind, the animal, the child, the woman, has been done under the inspiration of Christianity. Folks, Christians who began the first hospitals, first orphanages, who started working to try to give dignity to people. So compassion. You pick up when people are hurting and you care about it. Which leads to the next virtue. If you're compassionate, then kindness marks your life. And kindness here is the idea of moral goodness. Moral goodness. By the way, just a side note. When Jesus said, my yoke is easy, He uses the word that is translated kindness here. It is good. And the idea of kindness was wrapped up in the idea you care as much about your neighbor as you care about yourself. And therefore, when you can do good, when you can help them, you do it. You do it. Because it grows out of the compassion that cares, and it is what puts action to the compassion. And then this is a tough one, humility. I'd ask for a show of hands, but I know most of you are old enough to remember Mac Davis singing, Oh Lord, it's hard to be humble when you're perfect in every way. Uh, Folks, humility is not thinking too highly of yourself. And in the ancient world... They sneered at humility. A lot of people do here in our world as well. You see, there's not even a word in classical Greek for humility that doesn't carry the idea 
that you're a doormat. If you're humble, you cringe in servility. But that's not part of the word in Christian life. In Christian life, the idea of humility grows out of the understanding we are creatures of God. God made us. And therefore, we should always walk in humility before God. He is our creator. But it also carries the understanding that every one of us are creatures of God. Which means there is nobody on the face of the earth who has the right to be arrogant toward others. We can't be arrogant because of the color of our skin or our nationality. We can't be arrogant because we speak one language or we do one job. We can't be arrogant because we've come to recognize I am a creature of God. And so are you. And then gentleness. Some translations use the word meekness. And again, a word that was frowned upon by much of the ancient world. But Aristotle, years before, centuries before Paul wrote, Aristotle, a classical philosophical man, said that gentleness was the middle ground between being too angry or not being angry enough. I know we have difficulties with the idea of anger, But I remind you, Jesus was angry at the temple, wasn't he? I once read somebody who's trying to make the temple episode not so bad because they didn't like it, because gentle Jesus, meek and mild, would never do what he did at the temple. And they said, there's no evidence that he used the whip. And there's not. Do you know why I think there's no evidence that he used the whip? Everybody was running away from him. He was angry, not for himself, but what the people had turned the temple of the living God into. They were selling and buying and trading coinage in the court of the Gentiles. The only place a Gentile could come and pray, they had turned into a flea market. So the person who's gentle, who is meek, is under control and very specifically under the control of God. So that as he learns meekness, as she learns meekness, she is always ready for anger when she should be. When it's righteous indignation, folks, there's stuff in this world that should make us mad. Because they're wrong but never angry and explosive for the wrong reasons. You hurt my feelings, so I will never forgive you. Meekness, being under control, and then maybe the toughest of them all, patience. Because this is not patience waiting out Storm, Ida, or Eric, or Katrina. This is patience with each other. Paul's talking about be patient with other human beings and don't allow somebody who has harmed you, who has hurt you, who has let you down, steal your patience and turn you into someone who wants revenge, who wants getting even. I'm I'm part of that general. Folks, I was a teenager when the bumper stickers show, started showing up. Don't get mad, get even. 
Folks, I'm pretty sure anybody who's interested in getting even is mad. Patience says, I'm not going to let you turn me into a person who hates. I'm not going to let you turn me into someone who will despise. And do you know what the basis of this is? The Christian who is truly patient remembers God's patience. Can you imagine if God did to us what people so often do with people who fail? And yet he shows patience and love. Paul said, these are the virtues that should mark your life. And the reality is we are called to leave the ways of the world behind us. Now, what are the ways of the world? I'm glad you asked. Paul, actually, in verses 8 and 9 in this same chapter, he's he's dealing with the way a Christian should live in light of their faith. And he brings up the issue, there are certain clothes, Paul tells us, in verses 8 and 9, you need to be taking off. Those filthy rags you have worn till they're virtually see-through, muddy, messy, that just are horrible, take them off. And this is what he called for. Take off intense anger. Take off passionate outbursts of wrath, screaming your head off. Take out maliciousness. Quit being hateful. Take out abusive language when you tear people down and rip them up with your words. Take off obscene language, language that is in the gutter and lives there. Take off lying. I want you to think about those things for just a moment. Explosive anger, hatred, abusiveness with your words, ugliness with your words, deception. What is that all about? The world in which you and I live finds it pretty clearly. And Paul said you need to get rid of that. The thing is, if we allow that kind of behavior to rule our lives, if we forget who we are in Christ, which if we remember who we are, that will lead to the behavior we need. If we allow that worldly behavior control us, we dishonor God, You can talk about loving God all you want, but the Word makes it clear you can't hate your brother. But not only do we dishonor God, we destroy our own testimony. I said it before, and I don't say this happily. There are certain Christians in my life that I had met them first. I would have run away from Jesus as fast as I could. I may be using the word Christian very gently, professing Christians who were so full of hate, they destroy people. So instead of the negativity of living the way the world is, we are called here to focus on the good that God has given us. And when we do, when we start living by compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience, When that marks our lives, my friends, the virtues we are called to live will show us to be true followers of Christ. I 
Thanks, Charmel, for a trip back to the 1970s today. Uh, we Are One in the Spirit was the theme song of my youth group at Spring Lake Baptist Church. And every time we met on Friday nights together at our youth leader's home, we began with that song. We even began calling our group OIS, One in the Spirit. And I love it. I love that song. Because it defines who we are. And it has that very important statement that is echoing the words of Jesus. They'll know we are Christians by our love. And Jesus said, that's how people will know you've come from me. The acts of godliness will allow us to minister to one another and to minister to those outside of the church who have not yet seen the truth and need to. And folks, this comes back again to another song. Some of you remember this song. We've sung a lot through the years. Let others see Jesus in you. That's what we're being called to do here. When things get rough and people don't get along, what do you do? You act like Christ and you reach out to reconcile. Then, our second major reality, which grows out of the first, be who you are called to be, which will allow us to embrace this second reality when we understand the Word of God commands us to be restoration workers. We are commanded by God to be builders of bridges, to the ministry of reconciliation, to learning how to forgive even as we have been forgiven. You see, when Paul mentioned those virtues, Paul indicated that these individual virtues should guide the way the children of God treat each other. As you learn to clothe yourself in compassion, then together you will clothe yourselves in compassion. And you will treat each other the way God wants you to treat each other. See, that's what it was about. If you will live like this, Paul said, you will bring harmony and unity into your church. You will be able to accomplish the things God has called you to do because you are treating one another the way you should. But he, he does something else because Paul, Paul knew the human heart. But what if? What if the harmony is out of sync? What if you have, and please notice the direction Paul talks about, if you have a grievance with somebody else, you're the one who's supposed to start the ball rolling. But when you're out of sync, these virtues, particularly gentleness, being under control and not being ready to be angered by everybody who looks at you cross-eyed, patience, when people do mess up, you endure them. Through these virtues, Paul says, you're going to be able to do two things. NIV says you're going to be able to bear with each other. Now, folks, that's not, even in, even in modern language, it may, may not get across what Paul is saying. How about we put it this way? If you're living in those virtues, you're going to be able to put up with each other. 
Now, putting up may not be the best words either because that draws a whole different picture, doesn't it? I'm not talking about putting up by gritting your teeth and sighing and thinking, I've got to put up with those jerks because God said to. No. Curtis Vaughn, one of my favorite Southern Baptist writers to read, um, he's a long time, Minister of New Testament, Southern Seminary, said Christians who are truly patient will willingly bear with those whose faults or unpleasant traits are irritant to them. When we learn to embrace gentleness and patience, I will bear with you when you disappoint me. Not because I have to, but because Christ is changing my life and in changing my life, I know this is going to sound completely crazy after what I just said. Because I'm a child of God, I have to. Not because it's the law, but because the love of God has embraced my life. And I've learned what it means to be forgiven. I've learned what it means for God to bear with me. And so I'm compelled to bear with you. I'm compelled not only to bear with you, Paul says, we bear with each other, which means we affirm, we we value each other, we respect each other, and in doing so, we find ourselves ready to forgive each other. Now, the particular word for forgiveness here is the word charizomai. And that will mean nothing to you unless you love doing Greek studies but is built off a root, charis, which again, you may or may not recognize. Charis is the word translated grace. When we forgive each other, we are giving grace to each other. Grace. See, it's been pointed out, forgiveness is a gift, not an accomplishment. If I'm waiting for somebody to prove themselves to me before I forgive them, if I'm waiting for somebody to clean up their act before I forgive them, I'm not really forgiving them. It is the gracious giving of Christ on a cross so you and I could call God Father. And it is the giving of grace to a brother or sister who's harmed us, hurt us, disappointed us. Now why is that necessary? Why do we need to forgive? We looked at a few passages at the first of the service, didn't we? Forgive so you can be forgiven. Forgive or your father won't forgive you. The reality is when we hold on to a grudge, we build a wall in our relationship with God. And God can't break through that wall when we are full of hate. The scripture again says clearly you can't hate your brother and love God. And then... Norman Geisler said, grudges have no place in a Christian's life, for they may lead to the sins mentioned in chapter 3, 8, and 9. If I hold on to a grudge, eventually I will have intense anger. Eventually I will be explosive in that anger. Eventually I will act in hatred. I will say all sorts of manner of things that will hurt and, and denigrate you and bring you down in the eyes of other people. I will curse at you. I will lie to you if I hold on to the grudge. And Paul says, forgive. But as Paul is honest, I will try to be as well. 
There will be times we fail. There will be times I will fail you. There will be times you fail me. There will be times we will fail in character. But then what? What happens? What, what needs to happen when failure comes in the body of Christ and the unity and the harmony are broken? Well, in the text, we are called to a ministry and lifestyle of reconciliation. What you are children of God. We belong to our Father and reconciliation is in our spiritual DNA. It has always been our call to be peacemakers. It has always been in our call. The moment I named Christ as my Savior, the moment I received his gift, I was called to love, to forgive, and to bear. It's found throughout the Word of God. Let me give you a couple of examples. You shall not seek revenge or cherish anger towards your kinsfolk. You shall love your neighbor as a man like yourself. Aren't those great words? Right from the mouth of Jesus? No, no, they're not from his mouth. Those words about loving your neighbor like yourself, guess where they come from? Leviticus. Leviticus 19.18. The book of the law. If you're reading, and those of you joining in the reading through the word of God this year, I'm warning you when you get to Leviticus, it's going to be hard. If your ox gores a neighbor, I don't have an ox. So we don't expect that book to say, love your neighbor as a man like yourself. Then Jesus did say quite a lot, didn't he? Luke 6, do not judge and you will not be judged. Do not condemn and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Matthew 5, therefore, if you are offering your gift at the altar and there remembers that your brother or sister has something against you, leave your gift at the altar uh, first go and be reconciled to them, then come and offer your gift. We know this. We know we're supposed to be doing this. But the old man keeps raising his old nature, trying to pull us down. So when we fail each other, we have a choice. We can follow the path the Word of God tells us. And in Colossians, it tells us, bear with each other and forgive each other. That's what we're called to do. Or we can act like the world. Say, Brother Danny, I don't care what you say. I don't care what Jesus said. I'm not going to forgive. They hurt me too much. Well, folks, when we bear with each other, bearing with each other, forgiving each other will fulfill a major part of our calling. Because this is not a suggestion. Paul doesn't write to the Colossians, I think it'd really be good if you learned to forbear and forgive each other. I think that'd be great if you could learn to get along. No, this comes, this is what you're going to do. This is what you should do. This is what you must do. And you and I cannot be the church God wants us to be If we forget, the fellowship of the saints is supposed to be a place where healing takes place. Where restoration is a reality, reconciliation can happen. Because again, from the word of Jesus, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called children of God. And that's a Hebrew 
figure of speech. That of, remember James and John are called sons of thunder because they wanted to fire down from heaven. Well, Jesus is saying, you're like a bunch of loud, noisy thunder. Sons of thunder, just like your father, thunder. Folks, can you imagine it being said of us, we are children of God? We are like our father? I can think of no higher goal. Well, finally, our third reality. That in the end, it's going to make everything else possible. Restoration reveals the bond that holds us together. Restoration is showing us the bond. When you forgive me, I forgive you. We build bridges. We're showing the bond. And Paul very clearly pointed to the bond of love as the supreme virtue needed in the family of God. He says two things about that. Overall, these virtues put on love. Because love binds all things together in perfect unity. Now, people have argued about just what does he mean by that. And there are several possibilities. He may be saying that love was the most important virtue. And there is truth in that. He may have been saying that love will bind, have a binding power that holds believers together in true unity. And there's truth in that. And the third, most often interpreted, says, finally, on top of all the garments, you know, the garments of compassion and kindness and humility, gentleness, patience, upon all those garments, there's one more garment that you need to put on over them all, and that garment is love that will hold all of those virtues together perfectly. And I personally think, while there's truth in all three of these statements, in the context of Colossians, that seems to fit the metaphor that Paul's using. Because he's talking about the clothes you're putting on. Now, put on the garment of love. And E.Y. Mullins, uh, an amazing Southern Baptist theologian in the early 1900s, again, I have immeasurable respect for this man, showed how wonderfully love completes the virtues. It says, compassion may be an emotion merely. Love makes it an act. It may be simply a tear. Love makes it an outstretched hand. Kindness may be premeditated and planned. You have to think it through. Love makes it spontaneous and natural. I see someone hurting and I do something good because it's in my heart. It may be limited to our friends. We all know we... We love doing good for the people we love, but love makes it universal. You do good to all God brings your way. Forgiveness alone might leave us indifferent to the one forgiven. I'm going to forgive you, but I'm never going to think about you again. Love makes us wish and seek his good as far as circumstances permit. It's the love that binds us together. And the reality Without the bond of love, we cannot function as the body of Christ, as Christ's church. And Paul just doesn't talk about love to Colossians. In 1 Corinthians, he says, it is the greatest, the cardinal Christian grace. Faith, love, and hope. Faith, hope, and love, and the greatest of these is love. Uh, In Galatians 5, it is the pivotal spiritual fruit. In fact, there are a lot of folks... When Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit, 
he's talking about love and all those other fruit are simply manifestations of love. And then to the Romans he wrote, love is the fulfillment of the law. And when we understand Paul saw love as primary, it becomes extremely clear that we cannot walk the Christian life at the center of who we are without love at that center. We can be a lot of things without love. We can be a religious organization, an institution that has actions and meetings and gatherings. But we can't be the church. We can't be the body of Christ we are called to be without love. But when we walk in restorative love, we are truly revealed to be God's church. I simply remind you, even correct doctrine doesn't always define the church. If you'll remember in the book of Revelation, Christ sends a letter to Ephesus. And in those seven churches, Ephesus is clearly the most orthodox. You hunt out when these heresies, you drive them out of your midst. You are the most orthodox of all the churches, but you've left your first love. And he says it's because they've left their first love, they're in danger of judgment. When we ask, is reconciliation, is restoration possible? I point back to the Murrays and the works. I point to groups like Masala, which is an organization in Palestinian area comprised of believers across lines that are never crossed. 2010, a group of Messianic Jews met with a group of Palestinian Christians in Jerusalem. 150, they came together and demonstrated. But as one of them said, we didn't have placards. We didn't have signs. We weren't shouting at the top of our lungs. We had hands outstretched toward heaven and were singing songs of exaltation and praise in Hebrew and Arabic. And we rattled the foundations. And people saw Palestinian and Israeli loving each other in Christ. Messiah continues to work to today trying to build bridges of reconciliation. See, when we put into practice the virtues and commands given in our text, Christ can overcome barriers. He can overcome the pettiness that is sometimes seen in the human heart. He can overcome this desire to get even in the human heart. He can overcome some of the deep, most deep-seated prejudices and angers that we have if we open up our heart to him. We can show the world, you and I, as crazy as 2020 and 2021 have been, as much anger, as much hatred as we've seen in our land, as much division as there is, we have the opportunity in our little corner of the world, in Biloxi, Mississippi, of showing people 
what it really means to be the body of Christ. What it really means to show love and encouragement. In the applause of heaven, Max Lucado wrote about a big muscle-bound man named Daniel. Daniel's brother had swindled him out of almost everything he had. And he vowed, Daniel vowed, that if he ever saw his brother again, he would break his neck. A few months after making that vow, Daniel became a Christian. And having heard all the things that he was told being a Christian man, he was struggling with forgiving his brother. And he wasn't sure if it would ever be possible. One day, they lived in the same town. The inevitable finally happened. On a busy street corner, Daniel looked, and there was his brother. And he said, when I saw him, I saw him, but he didn't see me. And I felt my fist clench and my face get hot. My initial impulse was to grab him around the throat and choke the life out of him. But as I looked into my face, his face, my anger began to melt. For as I saw him, I saw the image of my father. I saw my father's eyes. I saw my father's look. I saw my father's expression. And as I saw my father in his face, my enemy once again became my brother. And all of a sudden, a brother who had swindled his own, kind of like Jacob and Esau, all of a sudden he found himself in the middle of a busy street wrapped up in the arms of his brother. But it was a hug. The two stood in the middle of the river of people and wept. And Lucado writes that Daniel's words bear repeating. When I saw the image of my father in his face, my enemy became my brother. See, you and I are called to seek reconciliation to restore one another, when we fail each other, when there are problems and battles that have been fought, we are called to bear with, to forgive. We do this because we must no longer live like the world. We have said goodbye to the things of the world. We need to let them go. And hatred and animosity is of the world. We do so because God's word commands us to do restoration. God says, this is who I'm calling you to be. This is what you are supposed to do. And we do this because when we offer restoration, when we offer forgiveness and reconciliation, we are revealing the bond of love. And we're telling the world, that knows what it is to be beat down in shame. There is a place you can find wholeness. So we have a, a grand choice to make here today. Will we seek to be a body of Christ that builds bridges, restoring relationships with those who have fallen? Will we look at that list of folks in our lives who have hurt us? And if we've been holding on to the grudges, will we let go?
Will we seek to restore? Or will we walk away from those who've hurt us and from those we have hurt? We all know the choice that we should make, don't we? When I began this passage, this message, there may have been some of you wishing you hadn't come to church today. We know what we're called to do. Today I urge you that you ask the Lord to move your heart with all of its pain, all of the anger that you've built up through the years, and ask him to heal it. And ask him to instead give you a heart that seeks to restore to bear with and forgive. I'm asking you today to ask God, give me the courage and strength to seek forgiveness, to give forgiveness.